Well, good afternoon, and I'm glad you're here, and Merry Christmas to you all. It's, uh, it's a glorious time of year, it is. Before we open the Word of God together, would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we thank you for the privilege to be called your children. And so we come before you today as those who have been quickened in our souls and made alive and your light has been spoken into our souls and we see Christ in him glorious. And we come together to lift him high and to worship him. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you fill us and lead us in this endeavor. And Father, may you receive our worship. May it please you. And so we come for that purpose, to lift you high as you deserve. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, welcome to uh, Folsom Bible Church, and Merry Christmas to you all. It's a glorious time. This time of year, obviously, is, is meant to be a joyous time. It is joy, joyful for most peoples in, in all the activities with friends and family and all the beautiful lights and the decorations and all the gifts exchanged, all the wonderful church services with choirs and, and symphonies and all those things that are just just kind of exhilarating and part of our culture and part of our traditions. But in all of that, we can lose sight of just what it is we're celebrating. We can miss sight of why we celebrate and who we celebrate. Of course, the world misses it. They haven't a clue what it is about, really. But the church must keep her focus. And if you, just to remind you here that we don't know the day or the month of his birth, so we don't know the actual day to celebrate, just so we know that. I hope that doesn't rock your world too bad. Also, we're never commanded in Scripture to celebrate his birth. We are to celebrate his death, but not his birth. So a lot of the church, a lot of the Christmas is tradition, church tradition. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying that's what it is. And sometimes we get so much into tradition, we've lost sight of what the Scripture simply says about that most glorious event that happened 2,000 years ago, roughly, and that is the birth of Christ. So I want to remind us of his birth. I want us to turn to the only reliable source, the only trustworthy source of infallible truth, and, of course, that's your Bible. So if you would open with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 is our text. Of course, it's a very familiar text, a very familiar passage that records the birth of Christ, and I pray that its familiarity doesn't cause us to check out or even treat this text with disdain. You know what they say, familiarity breeds contempt. But I, I pray that we come to this text with fresh eyes to have a, a, a new, uh, not new in the sense of, brand new but fresh look at an old story that we're very familiar with. So with that in our mind, I want to, before we read the text, I want to just kind of set the scene and, and build up to reading verses 1 through 20. God has promised a Savior long, long ago. Even as far back as Genesis 3 verse 15, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent even before then, in fact, before time began, before the foundation of the world, the Son of God was designated as the Savior. Scripture reveals to us that God the Father is the grand architect of our redemption, of our salvation, and He designed it for the Son to come to earth, to become a man, to live amongst us, to die on an old rugged cross, to be raised on the third day, to ascend back to heaven from whence he came, to come again, to reign on the earth, and after a thousand years to usher in the eternal state. This has been and is the divine plan of God since before time. 
God created then the entire universe with this in mind. In the scripture, God reveals some of his plan piece by piece in prophecies found in the, the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. It says we, 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 come to, we come to see them from the scriptures, the Old Testament, that there is one promised who would come to reign as sovereign king to deliver his people from their enemies, from their sins. He is said to be from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. He is to be of the family line of David, it says in 2 Samuel. He's to be born of a virgin, it says in Isaiah 7. The Hebrews call him the Messiah from a word which means to anoint. It's the Greek term Christ, Christos. In the Old Testament, prophet, priests, and kings were anointed for the work ahead, those chosen by God, and the anointing was to set them apart from all the rest, to show them that to be uniquely for this job ahead of them. This marked them off. The Messiah, the anointed one, was identified in the Old Testament as the promised one, the long-awaited one, he was called. He was called the expected one. In fact, in Matthew 11, while in prison, soon to lose his head, John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus to ask the most important question, are you the expected one? Or maybe better translated, are you the coming one? Or should we look for someone else? Jesus is the coming one because Jesus is also known as the sent one. Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus himself declares that he is sent from the Father numerous times in the Gospel of John. The Father chose the Son to be the Savior before time. He sent the Son into this world when it was the determined time to a chosen virgin, uh, virgin to be to be born in the chosen place, Bethlehem, at the proper time, and even gave his son to die, God did, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All of this now is according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Our salvation is God's idea, not ours from his heart of tender mercy, he designed it and will fulfill it perfectly every jot and tittle. So from our text today in Luke chapter 2, I want us to notice the hidden hand of God accomplishing the birth of Christ and our salvation. And upon understanding that, I want us to be moved in our soul to great joy and loud praise. Of God. You see, the birth of Christ is for our joy and God's glory. So if you're in Luke chapter 2, would you follow along as I read to set this in our mind? Now, in those days, verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, he was engaged to him and was with child. Verse 6, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them in verse 10, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the, multi the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God, saying in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. 
When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Verse 18, And all who heard it wondered at the things which were being told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying, praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Very simple account of the birth of our Savior. I want to go back and work our way through this as as fast and as clear as I can. Back in verses 1 through 3, as we look at the hidden hand of God working out our salvation in the birth of his king, I want us to see, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, Caesar's proclamation. This This is the king of the known world, Caesar, giving a decree for a census. Look at verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now who is this Caesar Augustus? Just quickly. He is a great authority because he gave the decree that the entire that moved the entire inhabited earth to leave their where they were living to go back to their home regions. This man Caesar is the single authority who's ruler of the known world at this time. He is the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. His birth name was Octavius, but in the third year of his reign, they changed his name, the the Senate of Rome did, to Augustus. After seeing his zeal to build a great Rome, they gave him that title, Caesar Augustus. Now, he brought great changes for Rome through might and oppression and and snuffing out all, all opposition It was known at that time, his time was, by historians, to be the golden era of Rome. And it was said that when he came to Rome in 27 B.C., it was the city of brick. And when he left, it was known as the city of marble. He was the greatest, they say, of all the Caesars. He brought about the amazing, and perhaps you've heard of the Pax Romana, Roman peace. That is, There was so much peace in the empire that they didn't have need for borders because no one dared to stand up against Rome. And so you have the Pax Romana that sometimes was called the Pax Augusta. They attribute it to Augustus. Now, but be sure, though, that the peace that Rome brought about is not the same peace that God promises. It is a, it's not a true peace. It's, 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 it's a lack of opposition because of fear of coming under the boot of, uh, and wrath of Rome. Rome didn't allow any public disturbance and any threat to the peace would be dealt with swiftly and harshly. Now, Augustus, the name Augustus, means majestic one, exalted one. It was a term reserved for the gods, but they began to identify Caesar as a god and began to worship the Caesars. In fact, if you know your history, towards the end of the first century, many, many Christians will be thrown to the lions because they refused to bow to the emperor and to offer incense. They would not worship Caesar. Augusta was the first one to be worshipped. This great one, Caesar Augustus, gave a command that a census be taken, and he wanted to count all the people in his empire for the sake of taxes, as they still do today, because they want to build great things for their name. Okay, now in Luke chapter 2, verse 2, there's another marker of history here that we need to look at. Just quickly look at verse 2. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Not much is known of this person, but he is a historical person. You can look him up and see his name in the registers of, of first century Syria. He was a leader there, and they say there was two different stints that he had as governor. So while he was governor and Caesar Augustus was emperor, they gave a census. Now, why do I say that? Well, archaeology has confirmed these men. These are real people. And I say that because Christianity is a historical reality. It's not like the Greco-Roman pantheon where these gods are all made up and they come from faraway places that don't exist. Or even cults today that say they come from Central and South America and there's no record of them being there. Christianity, you can go search out 
these places that the Old Testament and New Testament talk about. That Christianity is based on reality. God's the ultimate reality. And so because the Bible is true, the places and the people spoken of are real people in real places. So that's, I, I, that's important to bring out. So you got real people in real places with real experiences in real time in real historical places that you can go look at even today. Caesar Augustus then ruled over Rome for over 40 years. He gave a decree. He actually did. And Quirinius was actually the governor of Syria, historical fact. Verse 3, please. And everyone was on the way to register for the census. That shows how much power he had. Who in the world would stand against Caesar Augustus? Nobody in their right mind. So everybody's moving. Think of the activity within the empire and the, the, the transportation system that Augusta um, put into operation um, was vast roads like the world had never seen up to that time. So they could travel from, say, Israel to Rome on a road that was much like I-5 in comparison, yes? And so here you have the, the empire moving to from their home places to where they were born so that they could be counted and taxed. Now, why is that important? Please, look behind Caesar. Look behind that. Because notice the hidden hand of God in all of this. The most powerful man in the world is Caesar Augustus at the time. But he is but a tool in the hand of Yahweh. He doesn't know it, but he is just, he's just a tool. Caesar is an instrument in the hand of the one true God to accomplish the birth of God's Messiah King. Just as every other ruler before and since, Pharaoh was Yahweh's tool. King of, uh, of Assyria was Yahweh's tool. Nebuchadnezzar is Yahweh's tool. King Cyrus is Yahweh's servant and tool. Alexander the Great is Yahweh's tool. Caesar is Yahweh's tool. Herod is Yahweh's tool. Every president, every ruler since is Yahweh's tool to accomplish exactly what Yahweh wants. Okay? One text for this, listen to Daniel 4. And you will be driven away, this is told to Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at that time. You will be driven away from mankind and your place of habitation will be with the wild beasts in the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you. Now listen to this. Until you know or understand that the most high, true God, is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. They accomplish what he wants. My point is this. In the birth of Christ, why is it that verse 4 is in your text where it says, Joseph also went from Galilee to the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. It's because the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. And so God uses pagan king Caesar to accomplish and fulfill the scriptures that promised that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So you go from the proclamation of Caesar, you get down here now to the predicament of Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary have to pick up and move, as we read in verse 4, verse 5, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. They are of the line which promised the Messiah, which would come. That's the line of David. And as such, they must leave their home in Nazareth to be counted in Bethlehem, which is called the city of David, in verse 11. The predicament is she is with child. Think of this. Use your sanctified imagination if you can. She is with child, late enough in her gestation that she's soon to give birth in Bethlehem. She takes a 90-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, probably in her eighth month of gestation. It probably took seven to ten days. They didn't have Amtrak, and they probably didn't have Holiday Inns. In fact, I'm pretty certain they didn't, on the way. So there was nothing easy about this, a rugged road for sure. And according to verse 6, if you look at your text, the gestation was completed at the time and place of God's choosing. Everything is in perfect 
order. It's worth noting in verse 7, if you would, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Just like any other lady, what is the normal gestation? About nine months, right? That's saying this, that nine months before this, back in chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary to announce she's going to be with child, it was just the right time, nine months before this time, so that he would be born in Bethlehem at this time. But when the angel announced to Mary she's going to be with child, it was before Augusta gave the decree. So how sovereign is God? He's so, he controls everything, beloved. He controls, he controls the fallopian tubes. He controls conception. He controls where, because he's prophesied that a person would be born there. He governs all. Even the pagans have to bow to God, even unbeknownst to them. You see, nothing and no one can thwart the will of God ultimately. We should praise him for that. And so we see it here in this simple account of the birth of the Messiah. And notice in verse 7, if you would, please. It says there that she gave birth to her firstborn son. Fascinating. Firstborn of many others. <laughs> right? This is not monogenes. This is not only begotten. This is prototokos. This is one of more. Okay? Firstborn. So the whole Catholic thing where she's a perpetual virgin is a lie, as we learned last week, and we learned it when studying on Thursdays. This is another passage to affirm the reality that Mary was a virgin when she conceived to have Jesus, but after that, she's not a perpetual virgin. She's like every other mother. She, this is her firstborn in verse 7. Now think of this. In Matthew 13... Listen to this passage. The Jews that were listening to Jesus by this time in his ministry, Matthew 13, as he was saying things that were quite astounding, like he's the son of God, they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Wait just a minute. At Nazareth, right? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? I know where he I know where he used to live. I know him. And his brothers, you remember? James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. Remember those? And you know what? Now that I think about it, the text says, and his sisters. Not only did he have brothers, he had sisters. Right? So Mary is not a perpetual virgin. She was a virgin when the Holy Spirit came upon her and the conception of Jesus Christ, her firstborn. Every other child of hers is by natural, normal means, okay? And that just shows up right there in verse 7. She gave birth to her prototokos, her firstborn son. Now look at the rest of verse 7, if you would. It's just worth noting here, it's fascinating, that it says there that she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Why does he mention that? Because that's what you do to every kid that's born. Here's the son of God being treated like any other child. Because that's what you do to babies. You wrap them up in cloths, right? And you put them in a crib. His just happens to be a manger, right? This is a simple detail to depict the normalcy of this. Not the conception and certainly not the person who's coming into the world, but he's coming, he's becoming one of us to such a degree, like every other one of us who's only this big, they wrap him in cloth and put him in a crib. You see? It's fascinating. Just fascinating. Um, notice the poverty and the lowliness and the lack of glamour or shine or even glory, okay? It's by divine design here. God the Father, think of this now, has sent his glorious son, who's always existed in the heavenlies, sent his son to be born of a nondescript family in a nondescript little town of Bethlehem, to be born in a lowly cave. That's probably what this is, right? An, a, a shelter that was used either to protect animals or it's a cave that was a first century Palestine, Bethlehem, peasant home and in, in the peasant home of the day if you read about this they had two levels that was in a cave 
the upper levels where the family lived, and it was probably no bigger than this right here, and then the lower levels where the animals came, and they would feed their animals. And so there, it was a two-level structure. So here is where the Son of God is born in one of these enclosures. It's either entirely for animals or it's, it's a two-level peasant's home. The point is this. He left heaven's glory to live in my house by God's design. He sent his son from heaven to be laid in a manger. Last I checked, the manger is a feed trough. And I've seen lots of feed troughs. I've seen lots of cow slobber and feed troughs and animal slobber and feed troughs. Feed troughs are not really nice. I'm sure they put a horse blanket over it. I'm sure they put straw on there or something. But a, a feed trough for critters is probably not where Catherine would lay uh, Levi, right? Or Sky. I doubt the little, the, the, the Augustine would be laid in a feed trough, right, by, by choice. But here's the Son of God being sent by the Father from heaven to this nondescript peoples in the nondescript town and placed in a feed trough. It's just amazing the, the lowliness that our Lord has willingly come. Now look at verse 7. Why did all these details take place? Why, why such lowliness? Why, being, why is it that he's laid in a feed trough, the, the Son of God? Well, look what it says. Because there was no room for them in the inn. There, well, it's an interesting detail. We often get this picture of a mean old innkeeper saying, nah, we don't take pregnant women in here. <laughs> Kick her gone, right? I don't think that's what this is. I think you have so many people coming and moving because of the emperor's proclamation. And you have officials. Think of this. If you have Roman officials and Jewish officials, you think they probably took the best rooms, <laughs> right? And so they fill it up. They're, and so when, when Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem, there's no room. There's no, could, not used to being have, having so many people inundating this little village. So there's no room for them. So they go off and somehow have to find a place that will house them where they did, and they laid him in a feed trough. Why did they lay him in a feed trough? Because there was no room for them in the inn. And as one pastor said, I think the world has the same problem today, Right? There's no room for him. The world doesn't make any room. Think, think with me just a minute. I can't, I'm trying to move through this, but do you think that if the people who owned the inn and inhabited the inn at the time, if they knew that Yahweh, the creator, sustainer, sovereign ruler of the universe, was in the womb and now is in, is in swaddling clothes, do you think they would have made room <laughs> if they knew it was Yahweh? God? Maybe not. But maybe someone would have, you know? But it's just fascinating. Here, by God's design, in a humble, lowly fashion, he sends his son, and it's according to a pagan king's decree, so that he would move to Bethlehem, because he was supposed to be born there, according to Micah 5.2, which is 700 years before the event, to fulfill that scripture... Now think with this, God's salvation is, is before time and now it's entering history and unfolding in the coming of this child. And up to this point in our passage here, no one sees this as extraordinary. No one has a reason to get excited. Another kid is born, right? Hardly anyone even knows what has happened. And that leads us to verses 8 through 14. And God now will send his angels. It gets gooder. Starts to amp up a little bit. God sends his special messenger. One, in verse 8, you see it there. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. God sends his special messenger, one of his holy angels, these heavenly creatures who did not follow Satan in his rebellion. And these angels, these holy angels from Scripture are seen to be around the presence of God, always around his throne, praising him and serving him. They go, angels do, and speak 
only that which God commands them to do to whomever he chooses. And he sends them to shepherds. Right? He sends them to shepherds. And so in verses 8 and 9, we see the angel's presentation. It's important to note that God did not send his messenger to Caesar. He didn't send his messenger to the Pharisees, to the high priest. He sent them to the shepherds. This continues that theme of lowliness and God and his sovereignty. He shows favor on whom he wishes, God does, and he wishes to have favor on the lowly here. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 1? Listen to this text. The Apostle Paul looks at the Corinthians and he says, this is kind of God's MO. This is how he operates. For consider your calling, brothers, that there are not many wise according to the flesh. I think we all can say amen to that. And not many noble. I think we could say amen to that too. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the wise, which are or the things that are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that they may abolish the things that are. God chose to send his messenger from his presence to shepherds on a hillside outside of Bethlehem. Pretty cool. It's God's way. It's God's way. Now, what is a shepherd? It's worth noting, please. Who are these shepherds? Well, by the time the first century came around, they went from a respectable and even honorable lot to despised. Think of biblical history, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those were shepherds. Right? Um, King David was a shepherd. Yahweh is said to be a shepherd, right? Psalm 23. Even King Jesus is a shepherd in John 10. So, but by the time first century comes, it's lost its glitter and glamour. And now shepherds were seen as near the bottom of the social ladder. They were uneducated and unskilled, increasingly viewed as dishonest, unreliable, unsavory characters. Sound like a bunch of cowboys. <laughs> so much so, right? So much so are they down in the social ladder that they were not allowed to testify in court, right? You know who else wasn't allowed to testify in court? A woman. So in the first century, they saw shepherds like a woman, they couldn't rely on their testimony, right? They were viewed, think of this, as being in continual violation of the religious laws and hence ceremonially unclean and kept away from the temple and the synagogues. One commentator writes it from the Mishnah, which is a Jewish interpretation, commentary on the law. Shepherds were under a ban. They were, they were regarded as thieves, unsavory, the only people, it says in the Mishnah, lower than the shepherds at this first century time was the lepers. The lepers. So the shepherds were seen just above lepers. And if you remember lepers, lepers had to announce unclean, unclean when you approached them. Shepherds in the first century were often in colonies, off on, separated from the rest of society. So that tells you just how intense their, dis their disdain for shepherds are, okay? And God sends his angel from his presence to those guys. That's God's way, right? That's God's way. He's not impressed, beloved. Gold and shiny stuff don't mean much to God, right? And what we think we can do for him, he, it, he's not impressed. Right? He chooses the lowly on purpose to magnify his name. He's a God of grace, and he comes to shepherds. In verse 9, if you look, please, the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Just amazing. The shepherds that are out in the field, which means they're not in an enclosure. Some Talmud passages say that they, the shepherds were out in the fields from late spring to fall. 
Okay, so from, say, April till October was the time period that the shepherds were out in the fields, which kind of tells you the Lord was born sometime in those things, most likely in the fall, okay? But this is, they're out there in the fields. There's no wall around them. My point is this. Shepherds, then, are the wall. They have to guard their sheep. Their job is to protect sheep from thieves and from predators, Okay? And at nighttime, that's when predators come the most. I spend a lot of time awake at night taking care of cows and baby cows. So I, I, I can smell this text. Right? I, can, I, can, I can feel its uh, coldness, you know, and, and darkness. You train your eye to, to look at just how things are in the dark. And so you're hypervigilant because your job is to protect these sheep. So here are these shepherds out in the fields watching their sheep by night, protecting them. And then all of a sudden, somebody shows up, one guy. And what's, the, what's a shepherd to think at first? Are you friend or foe? You first or against us? Right? Are you here to steal my sheep? Right? I would draw my sword out at first. Who are you? Right? So he startles him. And he says there, suddenly in verse 9, he suddenly stood before them. Immediately stood before them. And notice what he's called in verse 9. An angel of the Lord. Angelos, messenger of the Lord. Belonging to the Lord as coming from the Lord. The Lord is the word kurios, which means master and sovereign one, the one in charge. In the Septuagint, follow this now, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, you have kurios translating the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai is where we look in our Old Testament that says Lord with the, with the capital L and the lowercase o-r-d. That's usually the word Adonai in the Hebrew. All capital Lord is usually Yahweh. Okay? So Adonai refers, is always refers in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, Adonai always refers to God, Yahweh. The Septuagint, the Greek translation, uses the word kurios, which is translated Lord in your New Testament, and is often used of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the context would tell you precisely what he means. Lord as being sovereign ruler like a king, or Lord as being Adonai, Yahweh. Now get this, if you look at the text in verse 9, the angel of the Lord is the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Adonai, the angel of God. Because look at the next line in verse 9, it says the glory of the Lord, who's the Lord there? That is Adonai, the Lord God, Yahweh. So the angel of the, is the angel who belongs to God being sent here to stand beside the shepherds on this hill in the middle of the night. Verse 9 says, And the glory of the Lord, the presentation um, is just amazing. The Lord is in the presentation. He likes to get our attention, right? So here you are in the night, and here is a, a guy next to you who sent from God, Yahweh Adonai, and in the darkness of the night shown the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, the glory of God. This is his radiant brilliance of all his perfections, the glory of him, like sunbeams radiating from the sun. This brightness is evidence of his presence. How awesome is this? This is light like no light on earth ever seen. This is brighter and more powerful than any light that could be imagined. Out there in the hillside watching their sheep, the lowly shepherds get this presentation of light. In Exodus 40, when they finished, Moses finished the tabernacle, it's the, the, to show the acceptance of Yahweh of the tabernacle that was erected in Exodus 40, it says there that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses couldn't enter it because of the glory. In Matthew 17, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. The Lord Jesus took his three closest disciples uh, Peter, James, and John, and went up on top of the mountain there. And he was, it says in verse 2 of Matthew 17, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. The glory of the Lord is radiating. 
in their presence. The Apostle Paul in his testimony in Acts 26, he says, While so engaged as I was journeying, he says, to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. The glory of God is brighter than the sun. I don't recommend you stare at the sun. Have you ever been a kid and stared at the sun because your older cousin dared you to? <laughs> it like blinds you. <laughs> it's not good for you, right? Have you ever stared? You ever been around an arc welder, right? The stick arc welder, right? A little kid. I mean, how many times was I told, don't look at that thing, right? You can't help it. Because if when they strike an arc and they're, and they're welding, the light from that strike will burn your eyes. And I burnt my eyes once and it was like sand in my eyes. God's glory is greater than the light of an arc welder. God's glory is greater than the sun that, that is so many million miles away that can burn your skin. And this is happening in the middle of the night to these shepherds. God chose to send his angel there. He chose this presentation. Can you imagine? What is your response? Exactly the same as theirs. It says at the end of verse 7, they were terribly frightened. <laughs> right? Terribly frightened. Not just frightened. They were terribly frightened. Greatly frightened. And that leads to the angel's pronouncement in verses 10 through 12. Look at what it says. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. I'm not here to steal your sheep or to harm you. <laughs> right? I'm here to tell you something. This is great. God sent his angel with the most glorious message that could be told. And what's so cool, it isn't the angel's message, it's God's message. He says, I bring you good news. That good news is the word we get, evangelion, to evangelize. Gospel, he says, I'm good newsing you. I was sent here to good news you, right? And look what it says there. I, verse 10, he says, I bring you, I'm bringing with me to you good news. I'm, I'm good newsing you, and this good news is one of great joy. Not just joy, but great, mega, mega joy. The message is mega joy. I love this, which is for all the people. Now listen to that, listen to that. The message that God gave to the angel to come to the shepherds, was it was the desire of God to tell them the reason for the message is to produce joy in the hearts of his people. I like that. You know it tells me? Can I be so bold? God wants me happy. As long as it's in him. <laughs> yeah? God is a happy God, and he has a message, a great good news of great joy. Mega joy. I just like to meditate on that. This is God's desire. This is God's plan. Since before time, he designed this. It's for all the people, it says in verse 10. For all the people, for all of Israel. But we learn later on, it's for the whole world. He's the savior of the whole world. It's good news for the great joy of anyone who will believe it. It's for the whole globe. Man, I love that. Look at verse 11. What is the reason for the joy? Look at this message. The angels are pronouncing this great joy. Verse 11, the reason is for today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Savior has already been born. Today has been born. He's already here. The long-promised one is already here. The coming one is here. He has come. He is, it says in the text about him, what is the joy related to? He is a savior. The word savior means to rescue. It means to deliver. He's the deliverer. He's, he's the promised deliverer. From physical and spiritual enemies is the understanding that they would know. We know from this side of history, don't we, that he saves by going to the cross. 
to die, to pay for our sin debt. Remember back in Matthew 21, the angel Gabriel said to Joseph, you shall name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. He's the world's only savior. He is their salvation and no under, no under name under heaven. This is saying this is why it's great joy. Have we lost that? Have we lost track of what we've been saved from? Have we lost track of the seriousness of our sin so that this no longer brings us joy? This message was intended to bring us great joy, and the joy is because he's a savior, he's a deliverer, he's a rescuer, man. Can we really trust that he can do this? I mean, think of these angels telling this message to these guys. I'm bringing you a message that's great joy because in Bethlehem today is born a Savior. Okay. A baby? Right? A baby? I mean, a lot could happen between here and now, right, for the little guy. Can we really trust that this baby has the power to deliver us? Can we be sure that he will accomplish this? But look at who the baby is. Look, look at what they say in verse 11. Today has been born a savior, a rescuer, a deliverer, who, by the way, he's Christ, Christos, which is Messiah in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, Mashiach, which is translated anointed one, which they said is the promised one, the one to whom all the prophecies of the Old Testament speak and find their fulfillment in is this person in the manger. The Messiah is the King of Israel, the Son of David who will sit on the throne forever and ever. God's King is the greatest of kings and the one to whom all other kings must bow. He is greater than Nebuchadnezzar, greater than Alexander, greater than Caesar Augustus, greater than Herod the Great. He's greater than anybody. The angel said to Mary back in Luke, when he informed Mary that she would conceive, it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, listen, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Can we trust that this baby can save us? Well, he's the promised Messiah. He's the Christ. But it gets even gooder. Not only is he a Savior, not only is he Christ, but who is he? The Lord. In verse 11, look what it says. Christ the Lord. Oh, my goodness. In verse 9, we already said that the Lord is Adonai. The Lord is God. This is an explicit statement of the deity of the Christ, of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh. He is Adonai. He is God. Here he is. Can he save? Yes, because he is God. And there's no one more powerful than God. How fascinating. The Savior of the world is the promised Jewish Messiah King who is the one true living God, creator, sustainer, and by the way, he's uh, laying in a feed trough down in Bethlehem, if you're interested. Herod wasn't interested. Remember when the Magi came? That's in Matthew chapter 2. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod got all uptight because he felt threatened about his position and asked about where would Messiah be born? Well, Micah says in Bethlehem. So Herod, instead of going to worship him, went and killed all the sons two years old and down, right? These guys, hey, your God is in a feed trough in Bethlehem. As amazing as it sounds, the great I am has taken on flesh. And in verse 12, he is wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Just like any other human baby, wrapped in cloths. But he's like no other human baby because he's the creator. Matthew 1.23, the angel said to Joseph, 
the angel made known this to Joseph, that the name that they would call him would be Emmanuel, which is God with us. The virgin conception and incarnation of God is the most stunning, awesome, amazing truth this world has ever contemplated. There's no greater truth to contemplate than deity becoming man and not losing deity. It's incredible. It's incredible. In fact, the Apostle Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote in Colossians 2.9 that in this baby all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is the all-sufficient Savior because he is God. God as the Savior of Israel is no new idea. That's, it's peppered throughout the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that Yahweh, God, is the Savior of Israel. By the way, shepherds, he took on flesh, and he's in a manger in Bethlehem. Are you interested? Well, they were. Because soon they will go there. But before they do, they get interrupted. It's fascinating. The angel presentation, the angel then comes and has a proclamation, announcement. And then there is this praise found in verses uh, 13 and 14. Look at what it says here. The angelic praise. Bursting onto the scene come the special forces of God. Do you see in verse 13, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. The word host is a word that can be translated militia or army. Here's an army of heavenly beings, heavenly creatures who are sent by God to accompany the one angel before the shepherds out there in the field. And they are performing that which they are always doing. They've been created to do and will always do for all eternity. And what do angels always do? They're praising the creator. Praising God. And here they come in verse 14, right? Praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Multitude means a great number. There's no number to put on it, but it's more than one. It's more than two, right? Can you imagine the sound, the symphony, if that's the right word, of these angelic beings that have the zeal and the passion of sinless creatures who come, just came from the presence of the living God to praise him in this realm with these shepherds. The light from the glory of the Lord. Think of the scene. Incredible, exhilarating. Makes, it, it makes goosebumps on me. I mean, to see that, to sense that. Think how loud that must have been. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest, right? It makes you want to sing that. And they come and they say, glory to God in the highest. Now, why do they do this? Why do they praise in such a manner? Because his plan for man's salvation has entered into history. It's starting to unfold. Here comes the will of God that he planned before the foundation of the world. And now it's coming to unfold. And he sent the second person of the Trinity, who they know. These angels were in his presence since they were created. They know who he is. And now he's in the manger. Now he's in a feed trough. Man, <laughs> I tell you, it's incredible. His, his plan is coming. He has come. His salvation is near. The eternal goal of God is nearer and nearer. The birth of Christ is then not only for the glory of God, but it's also for the good of mankind. It is for his praise. But look at what verse 14 says. Look at verse 14 in this, in this angelic praise. In verse 14, he, he's, he's, he's glorifying God in the highest, but then he moves to earth. And notice what it says. And on earth, peace among men with whom he's well pleased. Now there's some discrepancy on translation but it's the way the NAS and the ESV have it is is most faithful I do believe and it speaks this way God peace among men not men of goodwill because there is no such thing because we're sinful what this is saying is that peace among men with whom God is well pleased it's peace for those to whom he wants to send it you see, it says in Isaiah, there's no rest, there's no peace for the wicked. But God sends his peace to whom he wants to. This is what this is saying. 
He says the, the idea is more uh, a specific group identified by God. He's pleased to give you peace. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God. How? By faith. Justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Okay? Now, this refers to God's sovereign good pleasure. So the better rendering is probably this. Peace toward men on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. That sounds more like God. Right? It's not peace for the world. In fact, Jesus even said, don't think I, I came to bring peace to the world. Don't think that. Did you think that? He did not come to bring peace to the world, but a sword, he said. Right? So in one sense, he did not come to bring peace. Why do you say that? Well, what he's saying is that there are his followers, and then there are those who are not. And if he came to bring peace to the earth, he failed miserably. Because that's the last thing we have. But there's a certain group on whom his pleasure rests that have peace. Peace with God. Right? Shalom is this idea of, of well-being and prosperity and security and soundness and wholeness, not just a lack of opposition, but it's more of the whole person, the completeness. And it has to do more with character than circumstance. It's, it's a tranquility of the soul and mind, and, and there's a, a health to it in our inner person. It's, it's, it, and it's personified probably best by the Lord Jesus in the front of a boat sleeping in the midst of a storm. And his disciples, who are fishermen, by the way, are afraid. To make a professional fisherman afraid, that's a pretty heavy storm. But in the bow of the boat is Jesus, the Lord of the seas and the Lord of heaven and earth sleeping. That's the peace, you see. That's the peace he gives. Now that moves on now. Let's go here. Got a whip and spur. That moves on to verse 15 there. And we see now the response of the shepherds, the shepherds' pursuit, unlike, unlike Herod. Now the shepherds are like, are you interested? You want to check this out? Well, yeah, I do. Look at verse 15. When the angels had gone away, just as soon as they came, they left. Job done. Over. They went to heaven, where they came from. The shepherds began saying to one another, verse 15, Let us go to Bethlehem then to see this thing that had happened, which the Lord had made known to us. Okay? Now notice they only know it because the Lord made it known to them. They didn't come up on their own, right? their own ingenuity. It's by divine revelation that they knew that God was born down there. Right? The God-man was born down there. Verse 16, he goes on to say this. Notice the eagerness here in verse 16. So they came in a hurry, eager, uh, urgent in their in their person and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the idea is this that they were urgently seeking and searching for Mary so that he find the child I find that interesting that the angel didn't give him directions right didn't say hey you know go here here and turn left at that rock and they'll be right over there he didn't say that they're in there so go search for them right and so they go and they search they find them in verse 16 and in verse 17, we see their profession. Look at this. They're faithful to speak in verse 17. That when they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told them about this child. You know how they knew they were looking? At, think of this. Do you know how the, the shepherds knew that they were looking at the face of God? It's because he's wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger in Bethlehem. Not because he had a halo. Not because he was a big, strong guy, you know. And he wasn't even glowing in the dark. He's just a baby. Wrapped in cloths. But the unique thing was he's laying in a manger. That's how they knew this is God. Because verse 12 said, this is the sign for you. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of like, is that it? <laughs> I mean, he's kind of homely, you know. He's like every other kid until they get about six months, you know. They're kind of homely. What is this kid? <laughs> it's like isn't there more <laughs> I mean it's a little un, underdeveloped <laughs> right? it's, it's like a little low isn't it it's like I, I, this is okay Lord if that's the way you want to do it right and so in verse 17 he gives, he gives their report there he says and they made known the statement that had been told to them about the child and what, is, what was told them is found in verse 11 that this is Christ Savior Christ the Lord Okay, Christ the Lord. 
So there's telling these people. And know what's interesting is you move from there, you move into verse 18, and you see the perplexity of those around. Notice what it says in verse 18. And all who heard it. Now, interesting, who's the all? Right? Who's the all? Um, I'm just going to conjecture and say, as they were searching from place to place, looking for the baby wrapped in claws, they probably caused a stir. Wait a minute, what are you talking about, shepherd? Right? And so maybe some people were following and came along because it says all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. I don't know. So you have Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, there's no count, and then all, whoever else is there. Okay. So think of this now. Think of this. Here's this little girl, 14 years old, just gave birth, and you have all these strange men around. Doesn't seem weird. I mean, shepherds, are, they're men, right? Young boys and older, but they're strangers. <laughs> and she just gave birth. I just find that unique detail, <laughs> right? That, uh, again, shows the, 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 the lowliness of this, and just the, 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 it's just a fascinating reality that there's no specialness to this other than who this is. This is God in flesh, lying in a manger, wrapped in cloths. In verse 18, it says there, they wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. They wondered. They, 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 they were perplexed. They, they were in awe of this. They, they, they've never heard anything like this. I can imagine that it goes like this, right? You're telling me that an angel from heaven came to tell you that this child here is Yahweh in the flesh? How can this be? That's beyond my comprehension. Can the eternal, invisible, omnipotent spirit creator become a man? Become a baby? Wouldn't God, think of this, wouldn't God becoming one of us be a little more showy? Wouldn't have a little more glitter and pomp, you would think, Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't he be born, say, in heaven and raised up there to come to this world as a strong young man? I would think, maybe. Or wouldn't you think he would be born in a palace and raised in the palaces, the, the most special places on the planet, the grandest palace on earth? I mean, he is God, by the way. Wouldn't he be born in heaven and then come? Wouldn't he be born to a more significant family than Mary and Joseph, this young teenage virgin betrothed to a carpenter from the outposts of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Born in a cave that isn't even theirs? It's not even theirs. Laid in a feed trough that's used to feed camels and donkeys and cows and goats. And the only ones that know about this are shepherds, and us whom you've stirred from the town of Bethlehem. Now think about it. They're not mocking, but they're filled with wonder and amazement and marvel and astonishment. Have we come so familiar that we've lost our wonderment that God entered into this life as a baby? Man. Look at Mary's response real quick. We finish here. She treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. Treasured means she took them in and valued them and protected them. Pondered means she put these thoughts together. She heard what they were saying and she put these thoughts together. Now remember, she's nine months earlier had her own experience with angels. Gabriel came and said, hey, favored one, <laughs> right? So she puts that together with what the shepherds are saying and she ponders this in her heart. She's thinking on these things, meditating deeply on these things. And that leads finally to verse 20 where, where probably every night should end, right? With praise. Look what it says. The shepherds praise. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they'd heard and seen just as they had been told. This is the response of those who believe, and they join with the heavenly host with an anthem of praise. It is the practice of those who love God, who know God, 
to continually praise Him, to glorify Him, to exalt Him for who He is and what He's done. It is the natural way of those who belong to God. The lowly shepherds are in harmony with the heavenly army of angels. And they praise Him. And they praise Him. Today we've seen the hidden hand of God initiating the salvation that He planned before the foundation of the world as He brought about the birth of Christ, His King. Everything necessary, He made sure happened to fulfill every one of the promises to fulfill His eternal purpose in Christ. We know from this side of history, don't we, that the hand of God would eventually lead His Son to the cross outside of Jerusalem where the Father would turn away His back to His Son and allow Him to die because He's bearing our sins upon Himself. This is why He was born and why He came. This is for the salvation that He designed before the foundation of the world. And after three days, we know the Father would raise the Son from the dead and eventually bring Him back to glory and seat Him at His right hand until He's going to send the Son back. And this is all for our great joy, for those who take Him at His word. You're forgiven of all your sins. You're spared the eternal wrath of God. And promise the eternal joy and glory of his presence. Is that reason to rejoice? It is reason to rejoice. So we, you and I, join the heavenly hosts and the shepherds in praising God for such a great Savior and salvation. And we join the exhortation of Psalm 150. And I close with this. The last of the inspired psalms. Praise Yahweh. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to the abundance of His greatness. Praise Him with trumpet blast. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with string instruments and pipe. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Amen. Let's praise him now as we pray. Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation that we see unfolding in the birth of your son. We rejoice that your hidden hand accomplished all that you predetermined and you continually will do so until all things are finished. Father, I thank you for salvation and the hope of glory. Father, would you make us a people of praise in a fallen world, in the troubled world, through trials and tribulations. I pray that you would give us the grace to practice praise. So use us, Lord, to advance your kingdom. We'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.